listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Thank you, everyone, and hello and welcome to our program today. I am delighted to have with me right now an old friend of mine, J. Jesse Johnson, from the 80s group Archangel on Portrait Records. Come on in here, Jesse, and introduce yourself to the people. Say hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. How's everybody doing out there? You know, uh, Jesse, before we get into it, I see some similarities here between a group that I'm sure you're most familiar with, and that is a group called Steely Dan and Archangel. And I don't know if you can relate the two of them, but Archangel was a situation where at the time your 80s band known as Archangel got the contract to record records professionally. It was a contract between two individuals and the record company, even though the band itself at that time had not yet been established. Am I on track or no? Uh, yeah, Jeff Kanata was putting something together and uh, brought in studio musicians and to see what was going to happen. Vinnie Vincent, who had been, uh, was getting ready to be with Kiss, and he was with Edgar Winter, was the guitarist, and they were having some problems with him in the studio, from what I understand, and uh, they called me. So I became the guitarist for that, and then went on to do the MTV video. So there's that's my, how I became involved with Archangel. And the reason I compare all this to Steely Dan, because Steely Dan was not a band, per se. They gave the contract to individuals, Fagan and Becker, and then the band happened later. It was between the record label and two individuals, and Archangel, of course, was between the record company Portrait, a CBS division, and Kanata, and then uh, who was Michael Saldan? He was he, the keyboardist, and uh, he was also he was from New Haven area with uh, Jeff Kanata. They'd worked together for years. And until I did the project, I didn't know him, but uh, he was uh, he helped write that the hit that was on MTV, which was Tragedy. Sold quite well, and then the album sold quite well as, as a result of that. But the band chose, and Jeff Kanata basically chose not to tour with that band uh, or any Archangel and went ahead and did the next album as a solo album with Kanata. And here again, Jeff is a uh, great songwriter, musician, producer, and uh, I was fortunate enough to do a number of albums with him after that as, as a guest guitarist more. Uh, but here again, the same type of thing. It was a studio band and not a touring band. Right. Now, would it be fair to say that during the 80s, that's when we had all of these, these what they called glam or hair bands? Now, was Archangel considered in that category or would you say no? No, not at all. It, it, Archangel would be more of AOL, album-oriented rock or progressive rock. Yeah, it was not the big hair. Certainly, I, I, don't, I don't want to be derogatory, but there was definitely a number of posers 
Yes, <laughs> yes. Brands, you know, where yeah, hey, the, the glam, the G L A M, and uh, um, but no, that's not what that band was. I mean, everybody in it was top, were top notch musicians, and everybody had done stuff with large. I mean, many people had worked with uh, much bigger acts, and Jeff just knows people from being in the business, so he was able to bring people in from here and there. Now, your your group was on Portrait Records, and those that are record people and collectors are going to associate Portrait with probably one of their most famous uh, clients, and that's the Wilson sisters, Ann and Nancy, and their band Heart. Now, Heart has been on Portrait for years, haven't they? Well, they were, and uh, also Aldo Nova. Aldo Nova was on there, and he was big there. I think it was the song he had, Fantasy. Or yeah, Life is Just a Fantasy. Yeah, yeah, he was on that label as well, along with many other artists. But the fact that you're on a label with Hart and, and people that are with that kind of success always, for me at the time, we were, I was in a band, a Connecticut rock band called Cryer, and we were doing shows with lots of major bands, anybody from uh, Aerosmith, Hughes Priest, Johnny Winter, and uh, oh, for crying out loud, we did a couple shows with Twisted Sister. <laughs> D. Snyder. Uh, yeah, D. Snyder. Yeah, yeah. And, Absolutely. Uh, We're going to get into that. But before we do, I don't want the audience listening, Jesse, to be confused because it's going to be very easy for them to be confused because there is another organization out of Texas. They have the identical name that your group had, except for instead of Archangel, singular, it's Archangels, plural, with an S on the end. Do you know anything about that Texas group at all? Well, sure. I mean, I do now. It's probably more related to what Archangels were doing. And they were about maybe 10 years after Archangels. You know, we were an 80s band, and Archangel came a little bit later, I think the early 90s. But, you know, had Charlie Sexton, had Doyle Bramhall. I believe one or two of the members of Stevie Ray were in uh, from Double Trouble were in the band as well at one point. Uh, and they were very successful. And that's really kind of more of what I do. I mean, I was always a blues rock guy, but back in the 80s, you know, well, we did what we were, you know, we were trying to be successful, get a record label, do this, that, and the other thing. So you tended to kind of move a little bit more this way or that way. Now, I'm for the last, uh, certainly, and all my life, but certainly over the last 25 years, have pivoted towards blues rock and more, more blues than, than anything else. Right. Now, your career has spanned a heck of a lot more than 25 years. Oh, yeah. Don't rub that in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know that. Your career has spanned as many years on stage as I've been in this business here on the other end, I can assure you. Yeah, I started I started uh, way back, uh, you know, in the 70s. And uh, I was in New York State. And, and, of course, I came from a small town in Indiana. And we were playing the sock ops and everything and uh, doing that. And then when I graduated my school, I was looking to see the rest of the world and, and took my guitar and my amp and headed east. It worked out pretty well. You know, it depends on how you measure success. You know, sometimes if you only want to measure success and how much money you made, well, maybe maybe not the greatest. But for, as far as achievements and things I've been able to do, people have been able to meet, I'm, I'm 
I'm very happy and content with that. That's excellent. But I'll tell you something, Jesse, whether you're flying first class or economy, if the plane goes down, it's going to do the same thing to both of you. So it's often about what pleases you, what makes you happy. And if you're doing what you love to do, that is great. Just keep doing what your heart tells you to do. And I want you to be an inspiration to the young people out there that perhaps might want to get into the business because you've been there, you've done that, you've experienced it, you're still doing it. And very few people are going to have the background in the business that you have because you were on MTV with Archangel actually in the video. And this was very soon after MTV had been established, right? Oh, it was. I mean, we were there in 1983, and I believe they started broadcasting in 82 or maybe it was 81. And so, yeah, that was a big deal. And and, and it was a whole different way of people were getting exposed to music. I mean, the prior to that was FM radio, if you like that. And and uh, uh, I remember that because growing up on AM radio and being in a small town where you didn't have a music store, you couldn't buy albums. People think, how could that be? Well, that's the way it was then. You know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have cell phones and we didn't have, you know, instant communication. So you were kind of removed. You had to really dig and try to. But once MTV came out, that really allowed the exposure of different music to see the artists and relate to them. And you'd mentioned, too, you know, being an inspiration. I mean, nothing pleases me more. And uh, when I. We do a show, and anyone of any age, but especially when we have young people, and they come up and, and they you know, want to shake your hand, say hi, like your stuff, um, and may have a question about your guitar or your amp or something like that. And I, I love to, to discuss that stuff or you know, just you know, let them know to keep it up and, and enjoy it. So that's always very rewarding. That's for sure. Now, I want to do start with your beginning because Tom Petty sings about a girl from a small town in Indiana and, and talking about what, in an Indiana town on an Indiana night. And Jesse, I've been to an Indiana town and I'm not talking about Indianapolis. I've been there too. Excluding that, I've been to rural Indiana, and I'm going to tell you that there's not a whole lot going on, you know? <laughs> there isn't, and even to this day, you can still find some places out here in the Midwest that are removed from the rest of the world. And as a matter of fact, you used to play at the College Corner. Didn't you, Rick? Absolutely. I used to play every Sunday there when we did our, our jam session. And yeah. you would come in, Lynn, our, our mutual friend. Lenny would yeah. come in, my old keyboard player, Captain Kirk, he'd come in. And Captain you actually, Kirk, yeah. Yeah, you used yeah. him in your band for a while, didn't you? Yeah, he sat in, played some gigs with us. Uh, and, I, and I haven't seen him for a while, but he was, what a great guy. Very, very and talented. Right, very much so. See, what happened is, is that after my, we had a, a house gig uh, at a place, I don't know if you remember it, if you were in town, but it was called the Rusty Nail years ago. We had the house gig there, and our Hammond B3 player passed away. 
I attended his homegoing ceremony up in Oxford, and Kirk, who I was under the belief had moved to New York, because that's exactly what he did, he had moved back to Oxford, and I re-met him at the funeral of our old Hammond organ player. So I called him from the car one Sunday and said, look, it was good touching base with you after all these years at the uh, funeral. Now I'm on my way up here to College Corner and I would love it if you're, you know, he was just in Oxford. Uh, He had rented an apartment there. I said, if you're not doing anything, bring your guitar, his bass guitar, and come on and you can sit in with us. And then I left that on his voicemail. I attended the uh, the session, and, and later on that same evening, a couple hours later, in he walks, holding the bass guitar, which he played that night. But then later on, what he did is he went to Lenny and said, listen, do you mind if I come back next week, but instead of the bass, I bring a keyboard and play that? He said, oh, no, no, go right ahead, go right. And so he started playing the keyboards, which is something he did with our band, but he was our bass player with the band. And uh, the whole time he had been away in New York, he had really mastered the keyboards even better than what he did when he was here local. And he was good when he was local, too. So I was real happy about that. And that's how you got him in your band, because you met him there after I invited him in there. You see, it all works together, Jesse. Yeah, I, I had just moved back from the East Coast, and uh, I had family that had uh, lived in the, you know, over there in the Indiana area. So I was renting a house, and here I'm in a little town, College Corner, that has uh, nothing more than three bars, uh, one with live music, uh, a music store where I could buy strings, and that was Jackson's, Jim Jackson, our good friend. And uh, they had a little restaurant at the edge of town. So here, you know, unbeknownst to me, I come up there on a Sunday night. They said there was a band. I'm not thinking what to expect. And I came up there, and you guys are playing. <laughs> I went, wow, this is a great band. And here I am sitting having a drink, listening to a great band in College Corner, Ohio. And this was about 2010. And um, uh, Lynn, of course, and Tommy Long, his son, great guitarists. Oh, yes. Yes. And uh, so so it was great. So I started coming up and sitting in with you guys, and it was uh, was a great thing to see there. So we we had our own little, uh, little thing happening there, especially on Sunday nights. Absolutely. And that is where I had occasion to meet you. And I always knew you were special, Jesse, because unlike the average musician that I'm going to meet at a local venue like that, you've been there, you've done that, you talk the talk, you can walk the walk, and I'm just excited to have you on the show today because you started out in a rural town where None of us had cell phones. None of us had computers. None of us had these solid state amplifiers where you flick a button and it sounds like one amp. You flick another one, it's algorithm to sound like another one. Foot, you know, and you got a hundred of them in one one uh, digital location. 
and you had none of this. You had stock straight amplifiers from the old school Fender era and whatever else that the guitarists were using then. You just mastered your instrument, and then you were a young man. I'm going to assume you graduated high school, and if it's, you don't want to get into that, that's fine. But you were about... I, well, I, I, did. I, I, I did, and I'll tell you what. Um, you know, I was in the 70s. I, I was a guitar-playing hippie in a small town that was uh, not used to what I was doing. There was just a few of us who were... Um, you know, we were just, we were different, but really not because if back in those days, I remember going to concerts, even before I had my driver's license and we'd go to Cincinnati, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, to Hare Arena or Cincinnati Gardens. And you'd go see a concert with my first concert was, uh, Cactus, Atomic Rooster and Alice Cooper. It was $4.50, but to put those three acts together, you know, Cactus and Alice Cooper, well, maybe not so different, but you go see Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, and Black Oak, Arkansas with the opening for them. And that's, you know, I'd go to those, I'd leave Liberty to go drive to Cincinnati, and I'd get down there, and everybody had tie-dye t-shirts on long here, and of course they were smoking pot, and I'm going, hey, these are my people, this is great. So, <laughs> so you know, culturally, we were definitely a little bit uh, different than than uh, our surroundings. People looked at us like, what's wrong with those long hairs, you know? (laughs) You were 18 years old. You graduated high school. Now, were you good on the guitar at that time, or did you have a lot left to learn? I'm sure I had a lot to learn. I still have a lot to learn. I mean, here I've been doing, I've been playing guitar for over 50 years, and I still have a lot to learn. There's stuff I hear, I mean, you know, I go, whoa, I better sit down. And I hear players like, you hear something like Joe Bonamassa, and uh, you go, that cat, he knows what he's doing. He's got, he sounds great. I'm, you know, I have so many people that I like, as well as blues players and, you know, and the blues guys. I mean, they're not playing a lot of notes, but what there's that's what, you know, you can say more with two notes than you can with 20. So it's, it's really your, your delivery. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, when I was, I graduated high school, I guess kind of what I was saying was, it was kind of hard to get, you kind of wanted to quit, you know. I remember being 16, going, man, I don't want to do this. I want to get out of here. And uh, I, I looked real quickly, I'll tell you, I, I hitchhiked out to California on uh, the summer of between my uh, junior and senior year. And I took an acoustic guitar with me, and I won, and unbeknownst to my parents, <laughs> I had actually flown to Colorado from there. I met a friend, and I was out there hanging around, and instead of coming back, I went ahead and across the Rocky Mountains and went to California, and I spent like six weeks out there. And I wasn't going to come back. Uh, I, I figured, I'm out here. You know, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to do that. And I met somebody. Do you remember Zap Comics? Oh, yes. Zap Comics. Okay, so this guy was one of the illustrators for Zap Comics, and I met him in San Francisco, him and his wife. And they were in a VW van, you know? The old <laughs> microbus. Yes, microbus. And he picks me up, and he got me, you know, in the and. They were asking, they could, I was 17 years old. I was out, you know, doing, and I would never advise anyone, and especially somebody 17 years old, it's like, you know, the world's a different place than it was. Right, so it's know. a different place now, and it's dangerous. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly, but I saw them out there, and they said, well, we're going to come on back, you can stay at our house, I stayed there, and they kind of, I remember the kind of the, the conversation, is said, you really need to go back and graduate high school, and then go out and find your dream. You know, of course, now we would think graduate high school and go to college, which was also 
But um, they convinced me to do that. So I came back, and I, and I graduated from high school, finished my senior year, and then I literally left, graduated in the middle of the uh, first semester, and I headed east. And uh, I actually had some relatives in upstate New York, and that started that and ended up living in greater New York City area, Connecticut. Yeah, so was it a good thing? Did it make a difference? Well, maybe or maybe it didn't, but the point that you, yes, I encourage <laughs> anyone who's listening that's still not out of high school, please finish high school, uh, even if you're going to be a musician. Um, exactly. But, yeah, I've always been pro-education ever since the first day I went on the air years ago. And I, I'm not saying that it's for everybody. There are rare exceptions where I might slide the other way. For example, if somebody is an excellent, excellent tradesman and his parents uh, or were involved in the trades, uh, you know, plumbing or, or tile work or something where the market is good for it and you can make a decent, respectable living, there are trades that will pay very well. But no matter what it is you do, Jesse, if you get the education, they can't take it away from you once right. you have it. Right. Exactly. And, and uh, like I said, a different, different era, different uh, time and space now. But, you know, at least get, get finish your high school. Then if you decide a few years down the road, let's say you go into trade work and you don't want to keep doing that. All oh, plumbers make great money. Boy, they know? do. They do. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of a handyman myself. I don't know if I could be a plumber for, you know, as a, as a living. <laughs> right. I don't uh, recommend and I, and it I, for I, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a plumber, but, by the way, and I'm not a tradesman at all. But I know tradesmen that make very, very good livings for themselves sure. and their family. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but you, you know, keep, keep the door open for, for whatever you do, you know, that way, so keep it. Continue with your education, or go to you know. Yeah, I know of lots of friends that you know went to Berkeley Music College in Boston, and they're still musicians. I and you know, speaking now without getting into what's going on, if you're if you're a working musician, um, it's very difficult now because we have the virus going on, so people can't really work. And I mean, you look at the the major tours, the the the, the international tours, and I have friends that still work in that business. And they're not doing anything there because until this all passes, um, they're sitting at home. So the amount of people uh, that are out of work, musicians, artists, uh, in the arts right now, uh, we got we got to get we got to help them. We got to get them back going. So just a reminder to everyone that we want to do the right thing. So exactly, we want to stay healthy. We don't want any more dying of this pandemic than what we already yeah. have, and that's bad. But it's yeah. looking up, Jesse, for a, yeah, a vaccine. You remember, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. You're old enough, and so am I, Jesse, to remember polio. Do you remember that when you were a kid? Oh, sure. We got the, the vaccination. Right. How school, many people do you see today, Jesse, that have polio? Yeah, exactly. Um, and And... It, like you said, it will come around. Oh, it'll uh, come around. Come up, you know, we're gonna we're gonna figure out a, a, a cure for this, and whether it be sooner or later. And uh, you know, humanity moves on; it always does. So I have all the faith in the world, and, and that uh, things will things will be 
back to normal sooner than later. So I have the we'll same cross, faith cross you have. Uh, it was a Russian Jewish immigrant, Jesse, named Jonas Salk, who invented Jonas. the S-A-L-K, Jonas Salk, a Russian Jewish immigrant came along. He invented the vaccine for polio and basically eliminated the problem. I think he might have invented the fuzz tone for the guitar, too. <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you who started inventing a lot of things, and I know you know. It was the man from uh, uh, the group Boston, Scholes. Tom Scholes. Tom so Scholes. Jim, Jim Dunlop. Yeah, Jim, obviously, we start talking about that. We got to go to Leo Fender, who invented, you know, oh, yeah. really the electric guitar. Um, and I think there's a discrepancy that somebody else actually said there's a prior, but he was there. And, but no, Tom Scholes, uh, you know, uh, great. That was a great band, uh, Boston. And he did come up with a lot of uh, technical production aspects of it. And whenever I, I hear that first Boston album, anytime a song comes on or if I'm driving and I'm, Know, listening and uh, it comes up it's always uh it sounds great it's always it's always great to listen to right i was on aor fm radio jesse and we played it there you know coincidentally uh, gordon anderson who uh was the executive producer on an album i did with uh neil smith rock and roll hall of fame drummer uh, who was with Dallas cooper and uh, also joe bouchard from voice you called that band was called dead ringer that i was in and the executive producer on that was Gordon Anderson, and he was involved with um, um, Three Dog Night, and he was involved with uh, Boston. Um, and to that extent, I, I, I can't I say it's his executive producer or whatever, but there was there was always a little bit of uh, talk or discussion about how that would come up, and. Um, uh, he was. He did a lot of things. Actually, he. I looked up something about him, and he's back re-releasing records that go back to the fifties. So he's yeah, still he in was, the business. As far as I know, I have literally have not spoken to him for twenty-five years. But that was an interesting record there with uh, with Neil Smith, who I just spoke to on the phone the other day, uh, and um, actually doing some guitar tracks for Neil on on his uh, new album, and he just released an album. Uh, lost tracks that we did some studio work back in the 80s on. Uh, and uh, you can look that up at, on his site as well. Great guy, great drummer. Of course, I was when I was a kid, especially, but still, uh, I was an Alice Cooper fan. Uh, like with him. And Dennis Dunaway was the original bass player, and he was in that dead, dead ringer as well, Joe Pichard. And Charlie Hume, who sang on my second album, and Charlie's the current singer with the uh, Paul Cat. Oh, yes. One of the He's great, of great things. British guitar bands. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, Charlie's a great guy, good friend. People and, are going to uh, remember Foghat. If they don't know the name, they're certainly going to remember the song Slow Ride, Take It Easy. Oh, that's that's oh, yeah, Foghat. That was that's one of their, I guess that was probably their biggest, wasn't it? That, I, I, think it was. I would say that was probably their biggest. I like My Babe that they did, you know. She my babe, not your babe. She's my babe. She's so fine. You remember that yeah. one? Oh yeah. And and uh, for me, I mean, I think uh, because I love that first album so much was uh, just want to make love to you. 
Oh yes, yeah. No, Which I saw. Blue. Yeah, I and saw I, Craig I, I, McGregor's fog hat. Now that wasn't the original fog hat, but even Craig McGregor's fog hat when they went out, Craig was the bass player, and he yeah. had a, a a version of fog hat. They still played. I just want to make love to you. Well, and that, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's Roger Earls, the original drummer from Sabo Draft. He's still there, and I've, I've joined them on stage a number of times. Uh, in New York City and in, in Connecticut, the Foxwoods Casino, and then also uh, we did a warm-up show for them down here with the fabulous Thunderbirds uh, when I was down here in Indiana just uh, a few years back. Um, and Craig, unfortunately, has passed away. Um, he was a great guy and a great bassist. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the lineup until after he just passed away here in the last two to three years, uh, which is sad. But they're still out doing it. Uh, unfortunately, not this year on 2020, but they're still there, and they're I'm sure they're ready to go and want to get back out there, as so many others do. Well, you just played with them, didn't you? Uh, I went and saw. You them. sat in. Yeah. You sat in with them. I I don't know when it was. I, they were telling me you sat in w- with them. Yeah, I, exactly. I I have, uh, like I said, I've done it several times. It's been a few years since I've done it. But I did just go out and see them over at the phrase in Dayton, and they were opening for Bad Company. So I was, oh, yes. uh, back, I was backstage hanging with them. Um, I didn't get a chance to get out there and play with them as they were the opening show and not the main show. But uh, uh, what a great concert, Fog Hat and Bad Company. You know, two of my faves, they were great. Paul Rogers and the drummer, Simon Kirk, they came from the group Free that did All Right Now, Baby, It's All Right Now. You certainly know that. Oh, yeah. And then the bass player uh, of Bad Company, I don't know where they got a hold of him. I'm trying to think uh, where he came from, but that's got to be one of my favorite groups, although now that Paul Rogers has his own band, if you close your eyes, Jesse, it sounds identical to uh, Bad Company. You can't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, and I just I saw actually the Paul Rogers tour here just uh, I guess it's two years ago and in Cincinnati, and then turned around and saw them a year later with well, so it'd be three years ago, a year later with Bad Company. So he was on his own tour, Paul Rogers, and then he was back with Bad Company. And, and the, the guitar same... player was it was one of the original guitar players from Heart. Oh yeah, Paul Rogers definitely one of my favorites. He's uh, he's up there in the top five. Oh, absolutely. When I interviewed uh, Johnny Van Zant, who sings the lead with Skinnerd, you know, he told me one of his favorite singers of all time was Paul Rogers. Absolutely. Yeah. After you finally got your wits about you and completed graduation and graduated then you decided to go to the new york area greater new york area and that was because you had family or relatives there so you basically had a place to stay pretty much so of course i uh, you know growing up i was working for my dad's gas station so i always had a few bucks on me i never don't get me when i say that now they might think you have a lot of money no i didn't have a lot of money but i worked went to school and worked at the gas station and so when i left i was going on vacation to get out of there to see what was going on see if i could get uh make some connections and wasn't long before i had a job up there and was playing with musicians and we were playing with the uh Plattsburgh Air Force Base and uh, playing at State University of New York, at, uh, SUNY at Plattsburgh. 
So you're way up there. And then we started, I got in a, a, a good band, and we were playing in Montreal. So we would go from the States up to Canada, and we were playing up there. So you're, when I say New York, people think, oh, New York. No, we were, you know, we were five hours north. And now, but, was uh, that upstate there, New York, or were you in Connecticut? Yeah, that was still upstate New York. And then a few years after that, moved down to be closer to New York, and I was outside in Connecticut, and you're only an hour and a half from Manhattan. And that's I was there for several years. All right, now... When you're in Connecticut, finally, you get there. Was it your family that moved there, or were you on your own? I was on my own, yeah. I was, you know, I was I, when I moved there at 18, I left. Uh, I had a 67 Chevy station wagon with a 327 Holly 4 barrel. I had a Fender basement amp and a Stratocaster. I put that in the back there, and I headed out, and I said, here we go. And I never came back and, until I moved back here 40, almost 40 years later. That's and, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and then I kind of uh, have taken to the Cincinnati, which is a great music scene, greater Cincinnati area around here. And of course, we've left, gone out. I was in Europe for a few uh, a few weeks, and then we were out on. The, of course, I do go back to Connecticut, and that greater New York City area, and go out there and play every couple of years. I'll do three, four, five shows, and been out to California, and then we were down in Memphis playing. So I like being here in the Midwest. It's easy to kind of get around. I'd like to get back to Europe, and we'll see how that works out. Once again, you know, we got to get by the the this COVID thing, and uh, people start getting out and doing shows again. So I'm looking forward to what's coming up. Absolutely. Now, when you made it to Connecticut to stay, how did you get into the band Crier? I was actually in a band called Sass which was a three-piece band with flames and production and follow spot. And I have an interesting story about that. Uh, so Sass wanted to get closer, so they were out of Burlington, Vermont. So they found the band I was in, and they asked me to join. I joined the band, replaced their guitar player. And they had uh, quite a bit of production for a three-piece band. We had their own truck full of uh, <laughs> sound and lights and everything. So we moved down, and we were doing a show at a place called Pinecrest in Connecticut and outside was the big stage and Dickie Betts Southern Fury was playing and we were to close out the show inside at the clubhouse. So they went off, I guess at 10 or 11 and we started playing and it was a Sunday. I remember it was Sunday and I was wireless. I had a wireless and no one had wireless. Very few kiss had wireless. There was a couple other, you know, bands, but I mean just a few. So nobody had seen it. So after the show, Dickie Betts and his band came in and sat at a table, and there were these big round tables that sat maybe eight or ten people. I didn't know that's who was there because our lighting, when we had follows, we had a couple guys with follows, but we had a four-man crew running the show. And uh, so I, I'm wireless, so I, part of my thing was I'd come out and jump on tables and jump on bars and so I jump on Dickie Betts' table, and I'm like doing, you know, my guitar thing, and uh, you know, giving them giving them hell. And uh, I think I even spilled one of somebody's drink there because you know, I'd, you know, rocking and rolling on their damn table. I jumped off the thing. We finished the set, went backstage, and Dickie Betts' manager came back and said, uh, "Hi, I'm Dickie Betts' manager. Um, he'd like to meet you guys." I was like, holy shit, really? And uh, so 
Dickie came back with the band, and uh, I was, you know, I'm a huge Allman Brothers fan, first of all. He asked me for my autograph. <laughs> so Dickie Betts did Dickie. that? Yeah, and he asked me for my autograph, and uh, I'll never forget. What made it more e- even interesting is a couple of the members were from uh, Connersville, Indiana, which is one town over from where I grew up, and we knew the That was the, the Toller Brothers. Correct. That's the Toller Brothers. So they were in the band, and, uh, you know, they did. I just remember because it was more focused around and being a little starstruck from talking to Dickie Betts and, and being back there. We were drinking beers, and I will say they drank all our beers, and then they kind of left. <laughs> right. Now, for the people at home don't recognize the name Dickie Betts, if you're one of those non-musical people, Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman were the twin lead guitar players with the Allman Brothers Band. Yeah, and here again, uh, you know, their live album at the Fillmore is, is right there. If not the best, it's, right in the, it's another one. I say top five. Certainly, that is the top five out uh, for for me being a guitarist. Um, and there's so much that, uh, that you can get out of those. Even to the day you drop it, you drop. I'm saying drop the needle. I don't have a vinyl player, although I guess it's come back. Some people do. But, but, you know, you put a song on from that, and it's always so inspirational. What I'm just great there. Right. Well, now we have a bass player that went on locally to play bass for them. I'm sure you probably are aware of that, Jesse. Well, I have another story. I know you're going to talk about uh, Mr. Goldfleece, right? Dave Goldfleece, the rook. Yes. He, will, he played first with Dickie Betts and Great Southern. After another friend of mine turned that gig down, then they, but he recommended Dave Goldfelice to have it. And Dickie Betts hired David Goldfelice for a Louisville project that was backing up Dickie Betts's band. They were called Great Southern. And then the new organization became Dickie Betts and Great Southern. They had the Toller Brothers, then they had Dave Goldfelice, and then when the Almonds reformed, that's when Goldfelice and Betts and even uh, uh, Dan Toller went, and they were all part of uh, the Almond Brothers. Right, right, right. Yeah. I knew he was from Oxford, Ohio, and uh, when I was, uh, literally, I was 12, 13 years old, I was in a two-piece band. And uh, we didn't have a bass player because there was nobody around. And we used to play a place called Bang, which was in, uh, it's Oxford, in Oxford, Ohio. And, uh, yeah, and of course, that's where Miami University of Ohio is. But uh, Dave Goldfleas came out and saw us. And I can't remember, but I believe that he played, he brought his bass out. And it was fretless. Fretless. But you know what's I mean, I I don't you know I have pictures. Somebody has some pictures of that. Matter of fact, the drummer and he uh, gave me the pictures. And there was he says, "Oh, don't you remember that Dave?" I said, "I don't remember. I really don't." But I mean, that's a long damn time ago. So, uh, but, you know, I mean, here again, you, t- you think about the, the connections there, and we're going back talking about Dickie Betts and those guys. And here I am in Connecticut doing it, and we do this after show. You know, we weren't on the big stage; we were on the on the closing, uh, you know, closing out that show. So that band is the band that brought, you know, we got down to Connecticut and we did some stuff. But when I got down there, I had numerous offers to play with other stuff. And a fellow uh, who had worked for Epic Records, his name was Dave Pike, 
he'd been working with Derringer. He'd been working with your winner, Johnny Winter, and they were on the Epic Records label. He came to me and said he was wanted to put the band together, and he had all the musicians, and I was the guy for the band, and that was Cryer. And then Cryer uh, went ahead, and uh, we got a little later, a few years later, we ended up with different management, which was Agora management, of course, the Agora ballrooms. And once we did that, we were doing... Oh, we were doing shows opening for everybody, uh, and they were, you know, management so important. And um, so we got a lot of exposure. We did a lot of studio work, but we never released an album. And then the band uh, dissolved after about four to five years. It just uh, there was a lot of competition. There was a lot of things happening, and uh, for whatever reason, it just uh, that that happens. But your Connecticut band, Cryer. I'm going to spell it. Tell me if it's right. C-R-Y-E-R? Yes. Crier. They... I, never, I was never... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, said, I was never big on the name. I didn't... I was like, okay, whatever. Flip the coin. Well, this works. But it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. All right. But Crier actually did warm up many, not just one or two. You warmed up many name recording acts. Would that be correct? Oh, yeah, we did uh, lots of stuff. Chairman's Starship was one of my favorites, although, you know, I know that they talk about uh, some of the songs for later, and I like the Jefferson Airplane. But we did uh, Black Sabbath at the Springfield Civic Center, and uh, that's when Ian Gillen was singing. And right. Ian Gillen came from Deep Purple. From Deep Purple, correct. And so we did. That was a show we did. We did uh, Judas Priest. We did uh, um Johnny Winter, we knew that. Well, that was a little bit earlier than Agora got us. Well, we still did some, a couple of Johnny Winter shows. And, and uh, uh, there's so many I can't even you know, recall. Who, Aerosmith was another one we did. And I'll and, bet and you the, that was the, a young Aerosmith, not the Aerosmith well, from today, it wasn't. I mean, young in the respect, in the respect, they were still building a, uh, their audience. Well, no, this is after they got, they were already big because this was in the early 80s and they were having a hard time. Uh, Joe Perry left. So Steve Tyler was still there and he was uh, kind of a mess. And the band was, you know, that there were, you know, band go through, the bands go through phases. You, you hear them talk about it. You, you think. You know, they'd come up and they'd done really well, and then they really kind of started fizzling out, and then they came out with some great songs. And of course, Aerosmith is as big as, you know, they're one of the big names for sure and always will be. But, um, yeah, Joe Perry had left, coincidentally. Uh, it was like we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, Black Sabbath, who didn't have Ozzy at the time either. And, but then he, they came back around. Uh, but we did many, many shows. I mean, we did Twisted Sister, which is, you know, we did the Plasmatics. You know, that was a crazy show, but, you know, they, they fill us with wherever they felt it was going to be a good thing. We did Robin Trower. Um, right. Robin Trower record. came from the band Pro Call Harem. That's correct. That did the record Whiter Shade of Pale. Great song. Oh, very good song. Indeed. Yeah. Then he released Lady Love with his own band. Uh, he released Two Rolling Stoned. Yeah. Robin Trower was a guitar player extraordinaire. Did you like his style? I'm uh, sure. I'm a huge Robin Trower fan. And uh, as far as cover tunes, we still throw in a couple uh, Robin Trower songs in our set. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, great stuff. Bridge of Size, that album was very, very good. And, um, yeah, back, especially back in the day when you heard that stuff, um, that type of music, it was just 
so new and are so refreshing. I mean, now you've you've been able to kind of hear about it. Here's something that's really original uh, now is is difficult, but you hear an original talent, someone who maybe the way they play guitar, the way they sing, or just their writing capabilities makes them stand out. But it's so much more, it's so so much harder because there's such a, a saturation. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that there's a lot to listen to out there. Boy, isn't that the truth? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, Jesse, you went from the farm. Well, is it fair to say in, in Indiana, you lived on a farm or did you just live in a, in a rural town? I lived in a farm town. My father had a gas station in the town. Uh-huh. My parents were both working class. So, but believe me, I bailed my share of hay back in those days because all my friends were farmers. And uh, You worked you know, on a farm. Uh, I've done some work on a farm, and I now currently live on a farm. So uh, my wife's family farm, which has been here for 200 years. So uh, <laughs> what, goes, what goes around comes around. It's a great, great place to be in the midst of what's going on. So uh, it keeps you healthy. Here. So you went from Indiana to turned out to be Connecticut. You joined Crier, which was a good local band out in Connecticut. You got to warm up major acts with Crier, but then when Crier broke up, you then went to a group called Dead Ringer with members of Alice Cooper. Would that be right? That's correct. Alice Cooper, Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, that's right. Blue Oyster called. I had seen them. Uh, actually, they stayed at the hotel where my band was playing uh, out in California. So I had met them uh, back when um, uh, Steppenwolf, believe it or not, the new incarnation of John Kay and Steppenwolf was the headliner, and Blue Oyster Cult was one of the one of the warm up acts out there on the West well, Coast. Yeah, and, and we did we did a show with Steppenwolf and John Kay, and uh, he was a very nice. John Kay was in the you know if I had if I had to make a list of all the bands we did, it would be a long list. So when you say something uh, like when you mention John Kay, it's, oh that's right, and then I remember Steve, who was our bass player. Uh, John Kay wanted to get an Italian grinder because we lived in the, what they called Little Italy of the Greater Hartford area, which was kind of the second Little Italy next to New York City. So I had some of the best pizza places and the best bakeries. And, uh, you know, it's to, to this day, I mean, the, those, the, those places were just the, the top, top Italian food around. But uh, he took John Kay down to uh, an Italian grinder shop. We call them grinders, subs. And uh, that's what he wanted. So that was the story. Right now, John Kay, for those that don't know, John Kay was the lead singer of Steppenwolf. And he's the one that's saying, get your motor run and head out on the highway, born to be wild. And the ladies know it. The men know it. Everybody knows Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. And they were warming up Mark Farner's band or vice versa. Mark Farner was telling me that Steppenwolf was one of his favorite bands. So when you say Mark Farner's band, you're talking about Grand Funk Railroad? Grand Funk Railroad. Yes, sir. Yeah. I loved that band. That was another band that when I was, especially when I was young, they had a live album. I remember sitting down and learning that whole album. I'm going to tell you, we were at a place, you and I, uh, although you had totally forgotten it, but it was called Piccadilly Studios. We were there, 
And Lenny was there, my friend. You were there, and I. It was the three of us. And you sat down to the Hammond organ. I don't think it was a B3, but it sounded identical to it, which means it was probably a C3, which sounds the same. But you sat down and you played Grand Funk Railroad Mean Mistreater. I don't know if you have any knowledge of that. But, yeah, you treated us to a concert. I vaguely remember that I do one of the songs that Mark Farner sat down at the keyboards and played. Uh, and I, you know, I dabble in the keyboards. Uh, that's one of the songs that stuck with me over all these years. Right. Oh, that was a well-written tune. And, you know, on my Facebook page, I have a photo, uh, Jesse, of me and Mark Farner. And I put right on there, it says, just for the record, I do not consider any organization that calls themselves by that name, Grand Funk, to be Grand Funk without Mark Farner. Yeah, there's always that uh, confusion, which is similar to the John Fogarty, Creed uh, Clearwater, which yes. is so unfortunate because... Um, you know, he was the the writer, the singer, the guy, and yet for years and years and years, um, they went out without him, and he wasn't allowed to play his own material because he signed uh, some bogus contract with the record company that didn't allow him to. Uh, but it's uh, since been resolved, from what I know. But the Grand Funk Railroad, great band, Creedence Clearwater, great band. I mean, some some great songs. How about Dead Ringer? Were you warming up the major acts with uh, Dead Ringer too, or or was Dead that Ringer a Cryer? Was Cryer did more. Yeah, Cryer did. Cryer was a live band getting to the studio. Dead Ringer was put together with you know, Neil Smith, like I said, and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drummer. And Neil and, Smith uh, was the drummer for Alice Cooper. Th- that's correct. And then also Dennis Dunaway is the bassist. And he was uh, in the band as well. And then we had Joe Bouchard, who was the bassist with Louis Jacolt. But Joe came in as a writer, and he played keyboards and guitar, backing rhythm guitar uh, on the album. Then we had some other interesting guest people on that album. We had the background singers from David Bowie, the Sims Brothers. Uh, they were Bowie's background singers. They came in and did some stuff. Well, here again, you're you know you're close to the city, New York City, and things are. Dead Ringer was not didn't go on tour, and part of that was we had a five year contract. We were looking to do that, and the company that had started that, which was once again that was Epic Records executives started Grudge Records. Uh, Dave Mason was on the label. Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush was on the label. We were on the label, Dead Ringer. But we didn't go out and tour because after one album, the company went out of business. So we never finished a five-year contract, and everyone else was doing something else. I was uh, wanting to go, but it uh, never developed. So in one sense, you could say it was a studio studio band because we did the album and never went on tour. So. It goes back to the top of our conversation. You were talking about Steely Dan. <laughs> right. And no comparison No comparison in the music aspect of no. that. But in the sense that, uh, although that band, you know, we wanted to do that. We wanted to go out and do that. So it was all about management. It's all about, you know, the next step for that. And it just didn't develop. Right. Well, I'm going to tell, I've never publicly told my Steely Dan story, but I was indirectly connected with them for 10 years of my life. And I'm not going to tell it now, but 
I'm going to bring my dear friend Katie in here because she was connected at the same time. And we're going to get that out for the public to hear. But I'm just going to wait till I have her in the studio or on the electronic hookup. And we're going to we'll look, officially. We'll look forward to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Absolutely. Now tell me, who was singing with Ozzy when you warmed him up? Was it Ronnie James Dio uh, in place of Ozzy with Black Sabbath? Was it Dio? No, uh, no it was Ian Gillen. Oh, Ian uh, Gillen. That's right. From, from Deep, Deep Purple. Deep Purple. Yeah. He was he was the singer. And I, I don't really know. I think they just did one album. I'm not sure if there was a second album with Ian Gillen. I think actually I do think there was. But... um yeah, we did the Black Sabbath show, and that was Springfield Civic Center, so that was a, a, a big show. And it was, here again, so cool to be on stage with Black Sabbath. You know, Tony Iommi is one of the, also one of those people that when I was young, it was, it was an influence, you know. And you can say, how could you be influenced by B.B. King and Tony Iommi? Because I remember taking my, in my senior high school, I took my art teacher. And she was a new art teacher, and she was pretty. And uh, so in high school, I said, um, Ken, would you like to go to a concert with me, CBB King? So we went to Millette Hall in uh, uh, Oxford, Ohio, and, and uh, Miami University of Ohio there. They used to have great shows. I, mean, I saw so many shows there. And... Um, uh, so I saw B.B. King. So, uh, yeah, I was influenced by B.B. King, but if I could turn around, I could put Black Sabbath on, or I could put Steely Dan on, or even, geez, I like Cat Stevens, I mean, or or <laughs> James Taylor, or which way do you want to go? Deep Purple. Yeah, let's listen to more Deep Purple. And one of my favorite bands from that time, um, and still, I love this band, is Captain Beyond, a, a great guitar band, you know, and that kind of guitar rock music. And that's what I went towards, at the same time, I did like Southern rock and certainly the Allman Brothers. So, you know, and I was listening to jazz as well. I mean, John McLaughlin and, and you know, Birds of Fire. Uh, it, it just we we could go on and on and on because I mean, the, the vocabulary of music I like is everything that's good. You know, anything that has that it can open your mind a little bit and, and let in something that you don't know. You know, and uh, so. Hey, as well as let's not leave out Motown music, which, you know, my older sister listened to that stuff. And I grew up, you know, when I was just real small hearing that because all they had was AM radio. So you listen to what was on AM radio. And not all of it was good, but there was good music, certainly writers and the concept of what they were trying to do. But, uh, I, you know, in doing these shows later in my life, and getting to be on stage with, you know, everybody from, you know, Jefferson Starship to Black Sabbath to Johnny Winter and on and on. And uh, it was, uh, it was certainly uh, a special time, you know, a special thing. And we still do shows. I mean, we still, since I've come back and we can get into that with uh, my band, Jay Jesse Johnson Band, and we're geared a little more toward the blues. But, you know, we've done a number of shows with uh, lots of people and a little more in the blues market. Uh, with uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds and, and uh, we've done uh, Walter Trout and um, I can go on and on if I can remember them all but uh, so we lots of shows since we've come back to the Midwest area now Walter Trout of course is a blues artist he's got some very very good material I've always liked him but for the sake of the listener out there I just want to remind them 
the fabulous Thunderbirds. That's Jimmy Ray Vaughn. That is Stevie Ray Vaughn's older brother. They did, among other hits that they had, uh, Wrap It Up was one of them, I'll Take It. Some other hits that they've had, I believe that group broke up, Jesse. But they had they had their uh, their years of fame, not just fifteen minutes. The Thunderbirds were popular for a long time, Jesse. Yeah, they they, they were, and uh, I would say that show we did for with them has been about eight years ago, uh, and that was actually Fallout was the uh, uh, was the headliner, and then the Fabulous Thunderbirds that we went on before them, and then when Fallout came on, I joined Fallout for a version of Just Want to Make Love to You. Um, and that was in that was Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and that was a lot of fun. Matter of fact, I just posted a picture of that on the Facebook of that particular show. And like I said, I've been on stage with uh, several times before that, but uh, always enjoyed uh, joining them for that song. And and Roger Earl, the the uh, and we're talking about Fogat now here, not to skip around too much, but he was the original drummer with Savoy Brown. And of course we love Savoy Brown, Kim Simmons. And, uh, I was on stage with him and they said, can you do the Savoy Brown boogie with us? And I thought, well, I remember the song, but never did it. I think I said, what key is it? And that was it. And we played it on stage. So that was a real treat to do a Savoy Brown uh, song with the Roger Earl, the original drummer, Savoy Brown. We used to play Savoy Brown in my band, Jesse, and they did a song. I don't know if you remember it, but boy, was it a good one. In fact, it was one of the most requested tunes of people went nuts on this song. It was called Tell Mama. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big one. That's a boy, good that song. was a and big Savoy Brown number. You know, you talk about that, too. I mean, the bands that were not necessarily airplay, I mean, they got airplay on the album-oriented AOR or FM stations. You know, to make a, a breakout song where it becomes more of a crossover, where it's certainly, you know, more than FM play, it just gets there much more of a circulation. I mean, that's a huge thing. So you're always hoping that you can make that song and even to this day is when I'm writing, you know, you're not trying to write something, you're trying to write from the heart, but you're sometimes if you can stumble upon that thing or that thing that you become inspired by, and then that's the song that everybody can tap their foot to and sing along with. Certainly those are the things that help you break out. We're always trying to stick with it and come up with that. So be inspired, I would, I would tell anybody, find what, what inspires you. Well, that's what I want you to do, Jesse, because you went from rural Indiana out there in the middle of God's country, and you went to the New York area, and here you are playing with the major acts of the day, and some of those acts, they're still out there touring right now. And the young person is listening at home saying, now, wait, how should I handle this? And, you know, if they were to ask me, Jesse, the only thing I can tell them is, listen, if you know how to play, well, I'm going to quote one of your solo albums that you have. It's called Play That Damn Guitar. That's one of your albums, isn't it? It is. It is. I will say to the young, if you can play that damn guitar like J. Jesse Johnson does, your chance of warming up these major acts like he has done and to be part of groups that has employees in the organization 
from these major bands. It's the talent that's going to get you there initially, and a little bit of luck will help. But a little bit of luck is not going to help you if you have nothing once you get on stage, Jesse. Would you agree with that? Uh, I, I would say that, uh, <laughs> although, you know, we wonder sometimes when we may see somebody over the course of our lifetime who made it and you can scratch your head and can't figure out how they ever did it. <laughs> no, I I know that. Or they sign the organization, like, for example, the Monkees, they signed, as you know, and Mickey Dolans didn't even know how to play the drums, and he was going to be the drummer. They had to teach him how to play. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course, I, I, I hate to say, I guess I was... I was so young, I was probably only about eight, nine years old, and the Monkees came out, and they had some good songs, you know? Of course, they had uh, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart were the songwriters, and they was, those guys were great songwriters. And yes. Really, you know, whether it's Last Train to Clarksville or whatever you want to do. And yeah, it was pop, and yeah, it was corny um, from the television standpoint, but they were, you know, they were a band, and it was, I, I would say that was an inspiration as a young kid to see that uh, that being played on so it was more of the exposure of um, of our culture or what our culture you know of course you look back and, and there was so much of things were breaking open and I don't know that people in this time can appreciate that and that goes back to what we're saying everything is so instant you have you know your, uh, you know, your access to everything information and music and everything is is if you want it, it's there. Just go to it. Go to your computer and go online. You can get everything. And it wasn't it wasn't that way. So you were kind of dealt a card here and a card there, and uh, looking to try to make a hand out of it to to do that. And um, well, that that was part of, of of what inspired me. And I'm not saying the monkeys. I'm talking about the Beatles. I'm talking about the Rolling Stones. I'm talking about all the music that was. You know the British invasion. I mean, it was amazing. I clapped in the cream. I mean, I put that album on, and wow, you know, I've never been the same since. The second, the one that I heard after, which I would say I should have heard before, only in a time frame, but was the Jimi Hendrix "Sorry Experience" album. I mean, totally into this day. And here's here, here we are, uh, fifty years later, and um, it holds up. Yeah, yeah, it holds. It, it, it really does hold up, and. And of course, being inspired by uh, by Hendrix and and uh, uh, you know anything, anytime someone puts it on, I have to I stop and I listen, and it's always great. What about Jimi Hendrix, bassist Billy Cox, and drummer Buddy Miles? They were called a band of gypsies. Do you have anything to say about them? Well, I'll tell you, I, I was uh, fortunate I went to the Jimi Hendrix show, uh, and um, uh, Eric Johnson was there, and uh, a number of artists, but I didn't know Billy Cox was going to be on the lineup, and I didn't see the promo for it, and it was in the promo, but I, you know, we got, we actually got a connection through Shrapnel Records, which is a label that I was signed to in 2012, and that was Mike Carney, the producer, and everybody's been on there from... You know, Leslie West has been on Shrapnel Records, and Neil Sean from Journey has been on there, and it goes on and on and on. It's a guitar player's label. So in 2012, to be signed to Shrapnel Records was uh, quite a big deal for me, and I realized, hey, I'm still in this. I'm still in the game. 
but uh, through Shrapnel, they got me guest tickets to go see the, the uh, Hendrix show, and Billy Cox came out and played. And as good as everybody was, uh, that was the treat, because I'd never seen, I've never seen Jimi Hendrix. I was just a little too young to get to a concert. And of course, being out in the, out there in rural Indiana, it was a little bit more uh, to get to Cincinnati or Dayton or Indianapolis to see those when you're 10 years old, 11 years old. Uh, it was a real treat to see Billy Cox. And that's a great album. Band of Gypsies is, is here again. I mean, anything that, that, that they do. And I just watched the other day, I just watched the Woodstock anniversary again, you know, and they played the thing. And uh, of course, the, the Hendrix footage of that is still amazing. And that wasn't the, although that was still the original drummer, uh, but... Uh, His name was it, Mitch Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell, yeah. So Mitch Mitchell was on it, but they had, they had a, it was a different band. And yeah, I don't know yeah. if you know this or not, but there was a Cincinnati, Ohio-based band that used to, that hired Jimi Hendrix. He was the guitar player. They were from Lincoln Heights in Cincinnati. Now, they may have moved to New Jersey at the time they hired him, but it was the Isley Brothers that Hendrix used to play for. Yeah, and there's some great footage of him playing with the Isley Brothers, which is very, very interesting. Jimi Hendrix, Noel Redding, and Mitch Mitchell was the Jimi Hendrix experience. Then they became a band of gypsies, with Jimi Hendrix, bassist Billy Cox, and drummer Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles went on to release solo hits, including Them Changes, a big hit single, Buddy Miles, called Them Changes. You've played played that, I know. Oh, now, Jesse, it's amazing. Where has the time gone? I, I really don't know, but before we get out of here, Jesse... I just want to remind the people, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to a man today that has recorded 25 albums. He's played on 25 at least record albums. He's recorded six solo albums. And Jesse, for the young person coming up that wants in the business like you did when you took off in a car, went to Connecticut, you had a Fender basement amp, you had a Stratocaster. Uh, Fender Stratocaster guitar, and then the clothes on your back, and I'm going to assume a suitcase or two. And then you did well with that, but what are you going to tell the young person that wants to get in the business? Uh, is he crazy? Well, he or she crazy? Or or how do you handle it? What do you say? No, I, I you're not crazy. I mean, you have to be true to yourself. If that's something that you pursue, you just, uh, it's, it's full of ups and downs. There's no doubt about that and uh, being in the right place at the right time. And I was once told, I was talking to somebody, and they said, you seem like a nice guy. He said, it's unfortunate because nice guys finish last in this business, which was a little disheartening. I don't believe that, but uh, you have to you know, stay on point and, and uh, pursue it and don't let it get down. If you need to take a break, you go off and uh, you do something else. And unfortunately, to try to, to, try to make a living is you know very far and few between for people, and that that becomes something. So you know you need to keep yourself going, keep involved. When it's not inspiring anymore, you walk away for a while, and hopefully, if it's something that's going to be remain in your heart, you'll come back to it. That's what I can just say: be true to yourself, no matter what you do. But uh, being a musician is uh, and trying to 
trying to survive doing that is is definitely a chore, and it's um, something that you uh, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to pursue, and you have to want to do it. But don't be sidetracked by all the obstacles in the way. Just stick with it, and someday something might happen. Don't you feel as though those obstacles are the reason? that a lot of individuals in the business check out and hit the time clock and they're no longer with us anymore. They can't handle the depression that, that comes with being in this business with all the ups and the downs. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. There's such, it's such frustration. But when you're on that high and things are going, even though you're there, it does. it's hard to keep that rolling. I mean, all, part of that is reaching out and, and, and networking and making connections because the more people you know, then the more chance you have of getting in here or in there. And uh, that's part of it too. And at some point you need management, you need direction, and you need uh, agents to, to get you depending on where you want to go. But you know what? Even if you're in home and you've got now, everyone's got a home studio because that's, you know, back in the day when we were doing it, I mean, it cost you $1,000 a song at minimum just to go and record demos. And um, now everybody's got a home studio and you can do what you, what you have. There's, there's things like taxi to submit for movies or television shows and ways to get doors open. And sometimes, I mean, I went to Nashville in the mid nineties because I had a friend that worked for Sony records and I sent him a couple of songs. He goes, well, it's a little too rock. Of course, nowadays it wouldn't be too rock because country has changed. I went down there. I was for a couple of years. I was, flying down and hanging around and met a lot of people. I wasn't on the outside. I was on the inside, but uh, very competitive in Nashville. Country music really wasn't where my heart was at, but I thought maybe that might be able to uh, springboard onto something else and just get things going again. But I use that example just to say, hey, if you got to go here or go there to try to open that door to keep what you're you know, your dream alive, keep it going. Try to keep balanced and uh, hang with it, baby. Absolutely. Now, one more thing. I Somebody was telling me, or did I read in the newspaper, and this was a few years ago. This wasn't recently, Jesse, but I'm a graduate of Miami U, and I think oh. they sent me... Oh, yeah, I graduated there with a degree in uh, radio and television. But did they sent me something where you were actually in the classroom teaching the, the college students or lecturing to them? What were you doing at my college in the classroom? I was a, a guest speaker for an engineering department. They had asked me to come in, and there was a, there was a new class, they were, which is now uh, currently on the roster for classes you can take, and it's uh, uh, history, uh, history and um, history of heavy metal, uh, something history, I can't think of the name of it. So... They asked me, uh, because of what I used to really more basically do in the 80s, um, if I would be interested in coming and talking about it. So I said, sure. And they said, you know, whatever you want. Well, I came up with a concept of talking about distortion in guitar, Marshall amp, and how if you played a clean guitar. So I brought a stack of Marshalls in to the classroom, which was in the auditorium. And it was a class of about 90. And that was the first year. Well, it caught on. And now that is, you're able to take that class every year for credits. It was great. The students were very responsive. 
We had a great time. Then I did a Q&A afterwards after I did my 40-minute presentation and uh, had a great time. So I actually went back there and did that three times, three more times after that. So you're telling me that my college, Miami, Miami University, has a course, The History of Heavy Metal Rock? Heavy, yeah, uh, heavy metal music. And I will say this, uh, the professor, I'm not going to give the names or anything, but he said, I said, did you include Blue Cheer? And he goes, well, no, not really. I, said, oh, I hate to tell you this, but Blue Cheer is like the first heavy metal band ever. And I had that album. Oh, I remember Blue Cheer, definitely. And uh, and uh, so it was kind of kind of interesting. So I kind of brought my something to the actual curriculum of that class. They still teach it, still available. So I haven't been there to speak for. He he was invited me. You know, every year I have kind of an open night invitation to be a guest speaker. I haven't been there for a couple of years. We'll see. And here again, uh, very interesting. You know about how the creations, but. My concept was how the guitar, as it became, if you're trying to play a clean guitar, like a surf guitar, well, that wouldn't make, you know, you can't have heavy metal. And, of course, Black Sabbath and uh, Birmingham uh, in England and these, these factory in towns that where it really, really did, the evolution of it came up, even though Blue Cheer was an American band, but how the sound of the guitar and Jim Marshall making the Marshall amp became the sound of heavy rock and heavy metal. And it still is today. I mean, that's, if you don't have a guitar that's crunchy and wailing, it's going to be hard to be a heavy metal band, heavy rock band. Absolutely. Where can people get a hold of you, Jesse, to either hire the J. Jesse Johnson band to warm up their concert or to put on a concert? Or where can they get a hold of you just to write you and say, hey, Jesse, I'm so-and-so. I'm sending a shout out your way. You can go to jjessejohnson.com and there's a contact page there and uh, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from anybody and everybody out there. Whether you just want to say hi or you're interested in booking the band, let us know. Once again, it's jjessejohnson.com. And that's J, and the spelling of Jesse is J-E-S-S-E, Johnson. That's correct. That's correct. J-A-Y-J-A-Y-J-E-S-S-E-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Yes, sir. Very, very good. So you were... You were good in spelling class. Uh, well, English was never a problem for me. But my favorite, <laughs> I'll tell you what, my favorite class of all was speech. Do you believe that? I could believe that. Right. Don't, 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 don't kid yourself. That was my favorite. Everybody should have speech class. It builds self-confidence, which is good. That's correct. Yeah, that, that's great. Cool. Cool. And by the way, I when we were talking, I went to look this stuff because I thought, uh, bad that I didn't do it. The class is called EAS EAS two sixty six Metal on Metal Engineering and Globalization in Heavy Metal Music. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's it's a politically a, yeah. correct title. And, and it's Professor Brian Kirkmeyer who teaches that class. So, All right. Uh, yeah, I was uh, sorry I didn't have all. I had to make sure I had the right information in case somebody wants to is going to Miami U and wants to take that. So. Excellent. Metal, metal on metal, baby. J. Jesse Johnson, I don't know where the time has gone, but the only thing I would like to say to you, if you don't mind, later on, can you come back and let's just do it again and pick up where we left off? 
Sounds great. I may open a bottle of wine and pour a glass or two while we're <laughs> That's talking. That's all right. That's all right. At this time, I'm just going to have you to say goodbye, Jesse. Goodbye, Jesse. <laughs> oh, wow. The audience is laughing, Jesse. Say goodbye. Everybody, it's Rick Flynn. It's been fun, but I've got to run. Thank you to my man from Archangel and all of these acts that he's been with over the years, warming up all of the major acts, playing with everybody under the sun, the great J. Jesse Johnson. We've had a great, great time today. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. I love all of you. And thanks for everything you've done to support our podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Proceeding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.